The last time we're going to talk about experiencing God um, on a church, and I really hope if you're visiting, what we've been doing is we've been going through a workbook, something I've never done before on a Sunday morning, um, where we've all gone through over a hundred of our adults, a bunch of our kids. Matter of fact, Brett just told me yesterday there's a girl who uh, was going through it and asked him to start over from the beginning with him. So he's just got done now. He's starting it over and going through with another person, a teenager, going through experiencing God with the person. And what's been neat is a bunch of you have actually bought books almost completed with the program. You said, I want one of them books. And so it's kind of thing that, that we've done a long time. And uh, for Suzanne and I, for over 20 years, have done, used this workbook at least once a year to, to kind of keep us grounded and make sure we're really following the Lord. And, and uh, so I hope as we've been going through this, you've been kind of having the thoughts of the book integrated into you on how God is working all around us and he wants us to join with what he's doing. And so today as a wrap-up, um, I want to begin in a way that has nothing to do with experiencing God. I want to begin by telling you the stories of two different people. They're not current people. They're, they're people from history. And I really felt compelled while I was deer hunting. I was off for deer hunting the last couple of weeks. And... Um, I kept thinking about this Sunday. And I kept thinking, being compelled to, to do what I'm going to do right now. And I thought, well, Lord, that's, that's not really to do with experiencing God. But it really is. And so if you follow my train of thought, you're going to find out that it really is. So I want to tell you about two different people. And I'm going to start, first of all, by simply reading an article um, about one person. And this person was alive a long time ago, 1,800 years ago. And her name is... Perpetua. Now, I'm going to warn you in advance. I'm going to read about two pages of, a, of her real story. This came from, it's historically f- accurate. It's been translated into English um, from the year 202. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of, of names from people um, from back, you know, the Caesars and stuff in the Roman Empire. So I'm going to butcher the names just so you know that. So some of you history buffs are going to say, you said that emperor's name wrong or whatever. Bear with me as I, as I stumble through this. But I want you to pay attention to the story, first of all, about this lady named Perpetua. And then we're going to talk about another figure, another person. And I'm going to draw a comparison between them. Okay? So let me read, first of all, just the intro of who this lady was before we get into what the first part of the story. She's actually, she actually wrote the second part eyewitnesses wrote. And it'll, it'll distinguish where it is. So it says, but this is just the introduction. It says, in AD 202, Emperor Septipius um, Servius disallowed conversions to Christianity. In the wake of that act, severe persecution broke out against Christians, particularly in North Africa. Living in Carthage at the time was Perpetua, a young noble woman and new Christian who was preparing for baptism. Though Perpetua was only 22 years old and was still nursing her infant son, she was arrested and thrown into prison. Now this is the part that's written from her own writings. And remember, she's in prison, but she's a noble woman, so she has access to some things that maybe prisoners wouldn't, so she actually was writing a diary. It says, this is what she wrote, While we are still under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, I said, do you see this vase here, for example, or water pot or whatever? Yes, I do, said he. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. At this, my father was so angered by the word Christian that he moved forward toward me as though he would pluck out my eyes. But he left it at that and departed, vanquished along with his diabolical arguments. Then 
Tertitius and Pompondius, those blessed deacons who tried to take care of us, bribed the soldiers to allow us to go to a better part of the prison to refresh ourselves for a few hours. Everyone then left that dungeon and was shift and shifted for himself. I nursed my baby, who was faint from hunger. In my anxiety, I spoke to my mother about the child and tried to comfort my brother and gave the child into their charge. I was in prison because I saw them... I was in pain because I saw them suffering out of pity for me. There, these were trials I had to endure for many days. Then I got permission for my baby to stay with me in prison. At once I recovered my health, relieved as I was of my worry and anxiety over the child. My prison had suddenly become a palace so that I wanted to be there rather than anywhere else. I want to stop for a second. I want you to understand, this really happened. This isn't a story. It's a real lady telling her real story. Then my brother said to me, Dear sister, you are greatly privileged. Surely you might ask a vision to discover whether you are to be condemned or freed. Faith, faithfully I promised that I would, for I knew that I could speak with the Lord, whose great blessings I had come to experience. Then I made my request and I saw, and this is what I saw in a vision. I saw a ladder of tremendous height made of bronze reaching all the way to the heavens. But it was so narrow that only one person could climb up it at a time. The sides of the ladders were attached to the sides of the ladders were attached all sorts of metal weapons. There were swords, spears, hooks, daggers, and spikes. So that if anyone tried to climb up carelessly or without paying attention, he would be mangled and his flesh would adhere to the weapons. At the foot of the ladder lay a dragon of enormous size, and it would attack those who tried to climb up and try to terrify them from doing so. So Satarius and as a note, this is Perpetua's instructor in the Christian faith, was the first to go up. He who was later to give himself up of his own accord. He had been the builder of our strength, although he was not present when we were arrested. And he arrived at the top of the staircase, and he looked back and said to me, Perpetua, I am waiting for you. Take care. Do not let the dragon bite you. He will not harm me, I said, in the name of Jesus Christ. Slowly, as though he were afraid of me, the dragon stuck his head out from underneath the ladder, then using my first step, I trod on his head and went up. Then I saw an immense garden, and in it a gray-haired man sat in shepherd's garb. He was tall and milking sheep. And standing around him were many thousands of people clad in white garments. He raised his head, looked at me, and said, I'm glad you are here. Come, my child. And he called me over to him and gave me, as it were, a mouthful of milk he was drawing. And I took it in my cupped hands and consumed it. And all those who stood around me said, Amen. At the sound of this word, I came too, with the taste of something sweet still in my mouth. And I at once told my brother, and we realized that we would have to suffer, and that from now on, we would no longer have any hope in this life. A few days later, there was a rumor that we were going to give it, be given a hearing. My father also arrived from the city, worn with worry, and he came to see me with the idea of persuading me. Daughter, he said, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on your father. If I, desire to, if I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy us all. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. This was the way my father spoke out of love for me, kissing my hands and throwing himself down before me. 
I tried to comfort him, saying, It will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that he that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. And he left me in great sorrow. One day, while we were eating breakfast, we were suddenly hurried off for a hearing before Hilarnes, the governor, and all the others with questioned, when questioned, admitted their guilt. Then when it came my turn, my father appeared with my son, dragged me from the step, and said, Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby, which was a sacrifice of, of throwing something into a fire to honor the Caesars. Hilarnes, the governor, said to me, Have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperors. I will not, I retorted. Are you a Christian, said Hilarnes? And I said, Yes, I am. When my father persisted in trying to dissuade me, the governor ordered him to be thrown to the ground and beaten with a rod. I felt sorry for father, just as if I myself had been beaten. Then the governor passed sentence on all of us. We were condemned to the beasts and would re- returned into the prison in high spirits. And then it changes. It says, now an observer picks up the story and describes the events of March 7th, 203. The day of their victory dawned. And they marched from the prison to the amphitheater. Think this is a Roman Colosseum. To the amphitheater, joyfully, as though they were going to heaven, with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear. Perpetual went along with shining countenance and calm step, as the beloved of God, as the wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. They were then led up to the gates. And the men were forced to put on the robes of the priests of Saturn and the women the dress of the priestesses of Crease. But the noble Perpetua uh, strenuously resisted this to the end. We came to this of our own free will that our freedom should not be violated. We agreed to pledge our lives provided that we would do no such thing. You agreed with us to this. Even injustice recognizes justice. And the military tribune agreed. They were to be brought into the arena just as they were. Perpetua then began to sing a psalm. She was already treading on the head of the Egyptian dragon. Revolticus and Saturnus began to warn the onlooking mob. Then when they came within sight of Hilarnius, they suggested by their motions and gestures, you have condemned us, but God will condemn you, as what, that's what they were saying. At this time, the crowds became, became enraged and demanded that they be scourged before a line of gladiators. And then they rejoiced at this, and they had obtained a share of the Lord's suffering. For the young woman, however, the devil had prepared a mad heifer. This was an unusual animal, but it was chosen that their sex might be matched with that of the beast, so that they were stripped naked, placed in nets, and thus brought into the arena. When the crowd was horrified, even the crowd was horrified when they saw that one was a delicate young girl and the other was a woman fresh from childbirth. And so they were brought back again and dressed in unbelted tunics. First the heifer tossed Perpetua and she fell on her back. Then sitting up, she pulled down her tunic, and which was ripped along the side so that, her covered, so that it covered her thighs, thinking more of her modesty than of her pain. Next she asked for a pin to fasten her untidy hair, for it was not right for a martyr that a martyr should die with her hair in disorder, lest she might be seen to be in mourning in her hour of triumph. Then she got up, and seeing um, 
Philictius, Perpetua's Christian slave, had been crushed to the ground. She went over to her, gave her her hand, and lifted her up. Then the two stood side by side, but the cruelty of the mob was now appeased, and so they were called back through the gate of life. Perpetua then called for her brother and spoke to him together with the, with the others and said, You must all stand fast in the faith and love one another. Do not be weakened by what you have gone through. Immediately as the contest was coming to a close, a leopard was let loose. And Satyrus, as, as Satyrus predicted, after one bite, he was drenched in blood. Shortly afterward, he was thrown unconscious with the rest, of the, with the rest in the usual spot to have his throat cut. But the mob asked that their bodies be brought out into the open. And so the martyrs got up and went to the spot on their own accord. And kissing one another, they sealed their martyrdom with a ritual kiss of peace. And others took the sword in silence and without moving, especially Soterius, who being the first to climb the stairway, was the first to die. For once again, he was waiting for Perpetua. And Perpetua, however, had yet to taste more pain. She screamed as she was struck on the bone. And then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. Ah, most valiant and blessed martyrs, truly you are called chosen for the glory of Christ and Jesus Christ our Lord. Quite a story. Kind of think, like, where do you go from there? Okay? But a real story honestly happened, and here's the truth. I could have picked um, many, many, many other people from history who have been martyred. Thousands of people. Matter of fact, you realize that there are more people martyred today than there were back then. That in the last hundred years, more people have been martyred for their Christian faith than all the rest of history, Christian history combined. So I could have picked a number of people to say, this is what some people joyfully endure as believers. And that's the reason I picked her. This odd sense of her joyfully going to her death, understanding she's going to die and go be with Jesus. Now I want to tell you about a second person. So, so keep that on one side. Now I want to talk about a second person. This is going to be more just historical facts than, than an event in life. Um, this is a person that you know of. You probably have heard celebrated as a great Christian. Um, although I think you can find out it's probably not the truth. Um, and I, I mean no disrespect for this person. I want to talk about Thomas Jefferson for a minute. Thomas Jefferson is, was the third president of the United States, the chief author of the Declaration of Independence, a great man, right? The Christian right in America in the last number of years has tried to paint a picture of him as a great Christian. History doesn't paint that picture. Um, but he did call himself a Christian. And in fact, he was a very religious man. Thomas Jefferson... Um, was raised in the Church of England, uh, where he served as a lay administrator. And after the Revolutionary War, there couldn't be a Church of England anymore because they had just kicked England out. So the Church of England, the church became the Episcopal Church of America, and he then became part of the Episcopal Church of America. Um, while he was in college at William & Mary, um, he was influenced by a teaching, a philosophy called deism. And there he really became... Uh, well, he would call himself a Christian deist. You know, he called himself a Christian, and in fact, he studied theology a lot, but when you read his writings and you hear what he said, he was in fact a deist. And a deist is a person that denied um, the idea of 
miracles, denies the Christian concept of miracles, denies the Trinity. And the reason he denied miracles and the reason he denied the Trinity was because it didn't make sense to him. God had to fit in his framework. And he said, I just, this doesn't make sense to me. In fact, Jefferson did something incredibly bold. He took his Bible and he cut out of his Bible any references to miracles and that is supernatural. Matter of fact, he published it as a book, the Bible without any miraculous, without any, without any supernatural in it. But he kept the teachings of Jesus because he said, oh, I like those. I like the teachings of Jesus. As a deist, um, he calls it a Christian deist, Jefferson believed that God was the intelligent creator of an independent and a law-abiding world, but denied that God was involved or providentially guides the world or intervenes in any way with the destiny of the world. He believed this, and this is what deism believes, that reason is the sole instrument through which God's existence and nature can be deduced from the perfectly rational workings of the universe. In other words, logic and reason, he would say this, God gave you a brain, use it, that's how God influences the world. Deists believe something that, that theologians would call this, they call the clockwork universe theory. And the clockwork universe theory basically says this, God created and constructed the entire universe, However, after he created it, he then stood back in order to let, run, let it run on its own, that God is now at this time not involved in any way in the affairs of men. So, that's Thomas Jefferson. Says he's a believer. Says he's a Christian. Here's Perpetua. Says she's a believer. Stories of two people who said they were Christians. Perpetua, a martyr. Um, I, said I could use the examples of a thousand other martyrs. And Thomas Jefferson, a quote-unquote Christian deist now the question is why in the world would i spend 10 minutes telling these two stories for this reason and i want you to hear me today if i bored you with the stories wake up and hear me right now here's my reason because it's everything to do with experiencing god it is my contention and this is my contention so maybe i'm wrong but it is my contention that most present day american christians and most evangelicals which we are believe and live more like Thomas Jefferson than they do like Perpetua. That most modern-day evangelical, even evangelical Christians, because a lot of times we say that, oh, yeah, but we're evangelicals. We're not mainline. A lot of us, like me, came out of mainline churches, and we think that somehow we always have it all right. But my contention is that most present-day American Christians believe and live more like Thomas Jefferson than they do like Perpetua. Most believe in God, believe that Jesus was and is, that he is real, that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross, believe that God did set rules in place that are correct and they should be followed. There's commandments, but they don't really live as though God is present and active in their everyday lives. They live Thomas Jefferson's way of saying, God gave you a brain, just use it. What makes sense to me is what's right, and what does not make sense to me cannot be right. I would say this. Most people surely don't have the reality of Christ to such an extent that they would joyfully die for their faith, and I don't know if anybody would know that before they were in that situation. I don't think we could know that. Perpetua probably didn't know she had that. And in fact, though, I would say this. Many might not even continue to serve God if much of anything is required of them let alone thinking that serving Jesus may actually cause them difficulty and cost them anything, let alone costing them their life. 
to many, and I say this because it's the gospel that is being perpetuated throughout our nation, to many Christianity has become about what one gets, not what one gives. It's all about the blessing of God. It's all about living under the, under the, um, the uh, favor of the Lord. But when the favor of the Lord then isn't there, their faith falls apart. The favor is there, but they just don't recognize what it is. And I had a conversation with somebody recently about this exact topic, and we were talking about, and he wouldn't mind me saying this, we were talking about when Ron Ross was preaching in our church. Were you here for the veteran service? Ron Ross preached. He talked about a crisis of faith that he had. His crisis of faith, he basically said he, he, he almost lost, he felt he lost faith. He was a pastor with a, with a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees. And he says, my faith was shaken because I believe if I just serve God right, everything will go well. But his son was killed in battle in the military. And he said it didn't make sense. The reason why is because he'd been believing a gospel more like Thomas Jefferson than like Perpetua. A gospel that says that if you just serve me, everything will always go well. But that's not what we see. This is my observation that that's, we tend to live more like Thomas Jefferson than Perpetua. And I may be wrong, but I think I'm right about it, that that's, where this, that's kind of the state of the church today. Well, it's easy to point out problems. It's easy to say, well, so what? You know, okay, now you pointed it out. But there's a question that rises out of it, and it's a question that I hope leads to a solution. And my question is, if I'm right, that we're more like Thomas Jefferson than Perpetua, why, if, if we're right about that, why is it? If I'm right about that, and I believe this is the answer. I believe the answer is the reason more people are like Thomas Jefferson than like Perpetua is a lack of really experiencing God. That's why we come full circle to this. A lack of really experiencing the reality of God. That is why we spent 12 weeks on this topic, trying to get us to say, how do we genuinely experience God? You see, listen, friends, Thomas Jefferson cut out all the miracles out of his Bible because he had never experienced a miracle. You know what? He never sat here Tuesday night, which with a lot of you did with us Tuesday night for Thanksgiving celebration, and listened to Tony Trier stand up here and talk about how she's been healed from Sjogren's and autoimmune disease that the doctor said there was no hope for, but she has gone through the ringer and God has healed her. And the doctor said, don't bother coming back. You're better. Yay, right? Exactly, yay. Thomas Jefferson, could, he, was a, he, couldn't, he couldn't keep the scriptures in there that said that miraculous because it didn't make sense to him because he never sat next to Tony Trier or any Tony Trier. He had never seen the miraculous. He had never experienced in God. And so therefore, he said miracles and this might be right. Thomas Jefferson believed God was absent from human existence and didn't believe God speaks to his followers because he had never heard God speak to him. And most likely, I was trying to think why would that be, and I think most likely because he never really came to the God of the Bible, but rather he tried to conform the God of the Bible into who and what he thought God should be and what human reason alone led him to believe. So he tried to make God instead of letting God reveal himself. Church, the reason we have spent three months going through experiencing God's study is because I desperately want each one of you to experience God for yourself. 
for you to hear God speak and for you to experience him working in you and through you. I want for your families to experience God together so that your faith grows from your head to your heart. You see, Jefferson had it in his head, but Perpetua had it in her heart. And there's a world of difference between the two. The one makes you just say, I don't want to, that doesn't make sense, just cut out the parts I don't like. The other one says joyfully, go ahead and kill me because I'm meeting Jesus today in a better way. There's a huge difference between the two. And when I look at the church today, I see the church, the attitude, the atmosphere of the church being like Thomas Jefferson saying, well, we just take what we want and it's not really exciting and it's not really real, but Perpetua lives something real that changed the world. The Caesars tried to kill Christianity and after a while they just finally gave up. And under Constantine, they finally said, just let it be, the, let it be the, 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 um, the, the, the law of the land. Stop persecuting them. Because I think they realized they couldn't kill them. Why? Because they, real, they experienced something real. Friends, it comes down to experiencing the reality of God. And so for day, today, what I want to do is I want to summarize what we have learned about how we can experience God, how we can go beyond information about God to experiencing God. And friends, you need both. We need good theology. We need to study to show ourselves approved. We need to know God's Word. We should be the people who know this Word better than anybody on the planet. But we then also need to experience the reality of God because experiencing this Word is the... Experiencing Jesus is experiencing the Word because He is the Logos. He is the Word. He is the truth. So I, I want to kind of boil down this whole experiencing God thing we've gone through for three months into three statements. And you might say, well, why didn't you do that the first week? Because it's about the process. But I really believe you can boil down the whole book we've gone through, 12 weeks of sermons and 12 weeks of studies into three statements, and there are three of the seven realities from experiencing God. And these three statements are number one, Understand that God is always at work around you. We're going to talk about these. God is always at work around you. Number two, God invites you to become involved with Him in His work. And number three, you come to know God by experience as you obey Him and He accomplishes His work through you. And one flows out of the next. These statements just summarize the 12 weeks that we've gone through. First, we need to realize this, that God is always at work around us, that God is on a mission to seek and to save those who are lost. And he is always accomplishing his mission. He's always, we use an example of this one sermon, he's always causing situations that causes people to be ripened, their fruit that needs to be harvested, and he's always causing their lives situations so that they will become ripe for harvest. That that's what he's doing. He's on mission. John 5, 17. Jesus himself says this, My Father is always working, and so am I. Friends, if you have the picture of God, of Jesus in your mind, that he's sitting somewhere in a field holding a sheep, get it out of your mind. He says here of himself, John 5, 17, my father is always working and so am I. He's not sitting on a cloud playing a harp. He's not holding a sheep somewhere. He is active in the affairs of men, getting people to come to the point that understand, the place where they understand that they need Jesus. Jefferson was wrong. Thomas Jefferson was wrong. God is totally involved in human affairs. He's always at work around us. Those are Jesus' words. I don't care what Thomas Jefferson says if they're opposed to what Jesus says. Jesus says him and the Father are always working on their mission, and that's the truth. He's always at work around us. And friends, just recognizing that God is always at work in the lives of the people around you and He's always wanting to be at work in your life 
just recognizing that will change your whole view of your life. Suddenly, life isn't about making a living. Life's not about being entertained. Life's not about 401Ks. It's about something so much greater. God is involved and active right here and right now. See, I honestly believe today that when I was preparing, God said to me, Mark, focus on the fact that I'm right here and right now. And I understood to say it because if not everybody, at least somebody really needed to hear that today. Because God is working in lives right here and right now in all of our lives. He's active. Friend, just think about this. With this reality, if you walk through life with this reality, instead of the reality of I've got to do my 9 to 5 or I've got to accomplish this or I've got to do that, those things you've got to do. But we understand that overriding all of it or undergirding all of it is God's activity. Then you ask yourself about this. What's God's wanting to do in, the life, in my life right now? You walk in the church and you say, what's God want to do in my life right now? You ask, what's God doing in my kid's life right now? Or what's God doing in my spouse's life right now? Or what's God doing in my neighbor's life right now? God is always at work around us. We recognize that truth will change our lives. Then that truth then leads into the second statement. Because he's always at work around us, then God invites you and me to be involved with him in his work. All of us. No matter who you are, you don't have to have Rev in front of your name. Matter of fact, I think he'd rather work with people who doesn't, don't have Rev in front of their name. He just lo- It's day in, day out work in people's lives he loves to do out in the world. And he's always at work around us, and he is now inviting us to be involved with him in his work. He's inviting us to build a house in Mexico for a family that has nothing that's going to change an entire town because they're going to say that church that wasn't even open a couple years ago is now open and it's growing and they're, and they're expanding. And now that church is actually really helping families. And they're going to go, this God must be really real. He's always at work around us and he invites us to get involved in his work. See, God's not just going around the world doing a bunch of stuff anonymously in people's lives. He doesn't just walk up secretly and go, oh, poof, I'm going to do this in your life. That's not how he does it. No, he accomplishes his activity through people, through you and me. That's how he did it. Read the scriptures from cover to cover. God involves himself in the people's lives, and then he works through people. When God wanted to give mankind a fresh start after they had corrupted the world with sin and violence, he chose a man. He chose Noah, and he accomplishes his work through him. Who built the ark? Noah built the ark, but God told him to do it, right? Noah, God used a man to build an ark by God's instructions and by God's enablement. He did it, and God involved Noah to be involved with him in his work. God says, come and join with me. When God wanted to deliver Israel from Egyptian slavery, he chose a person. He chose Moses. And Moses led the people out of Egypt after God did amazing miracles through Moses, you know, turning the Nile into blood and killing all the firstborn children. And and God did that through Moses, God invited Moses to be part of what he was doing. And church, God is inviting us to be involved in what he is doing here and now. We need to keep our eyes open to what he is doing and join with him in his activity. Friends, it's not about living living out our agendas. It's about getting on track with his agenda. That's where real life is found. And here's the point I want you to get. The life that Perpetua lived is what the Lord called real life. 
He says there's life, but I came to give you more life, real life, life abundantly. And what I'm broken heart about is I see the church world living in Thomas Jefferson fake life that's empty and it's boring and they don't get anything out of it. And so they, they take Christianity for what they think they can get out of it and it's empty and they walk away when anything bad happens. But the perpetual kind of life, the real life, the abundant life, you're living with Christ, the reality. And so you're partnering in his work and he's using you. You're amazed by God. And suddenly all the stuff of the world is meaningless to you. You go, I don't care about that stuff anymore because this is so much better. That's what he's trying to show us. That Perpetua, don't cry for Perpetua. She would cry for us in our day and age. She would cry for us and say, you're like Thomas Jefferson. You're empty. You don't have anything. She said, there's so much more in Christ. And it comes through experiencing God. And so we experience him when he knows he's always at work around us. And then we get on board with his agenda. And we say, God, how can I join you? You know, I don't mean this in any way um, manipulatively. I really don't. But just think that just maybe this year at Christmas time, and I'm not suggesting you even do this. It just popped in my head. Just maybe this year at Christmas time, God will lead you to say to your family, you know what? We can buy that stuff or we can give that away to this to help build this house. And you ask and you'll say as a family, which one will have a greater sense of the glory of God at Christmas time in your family. Which one will make you feel better? Which one will make you more connected to God saying, we're part of doing a miracle or I got another whatever? I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just saying, what if that would be a way God would lead you to do that? That we God wants us to be involved in his activity. It's about his agenda. And then this is where the third statement comes in. When you understand he's working and you get involved with the work, then you come to know God by experience as you obey him and he accomplishes his work through you. When you are the Noah or the Moses of God's plan, of God's story, then you come to know him by experience. When you're the Noah, when you're the, when you're the Moses of God's story, and when the story is told, you're the one whose name's in the blank, And God spoke to, put your name there, and God did this. When you're that person in the story, you come to know him in a way by experience that you never knew him just by theology and knowledge. You come to experience him. When you are involved in God's activity, it's then that you come to experience his reality. Without being involved in his activity, you only have second-hand knowledge of God, someone else's story. You are then a Thomas Jefferson. You have head knowledge, but not heart transformation. But friends, God wants you to experience him firsthand. So he invites you into his activity. He invites you in over your head. He invites you to do things that you can't do on your own. And you say, God, it's impossible. It can't be done. I can't do that thing. And he goes, you're right. You can't, but I can. And he wants to work through you because then you experience his miraculousness. And when you experience his miraculousness, then you say, wow, God, you're amazing. But if you don't experience it, you just say, oh, I'll cut and paste to make you who I want you to be. You're not so amazing. Church. I love Thomas Jefferson. He's one of my heroes. She's one of your heroes. But Thomas Jefferson Christianity, I think, is the norm of of our culture today. Intellectual Christianity. But it's not God's plan. That's not what Jesus intended. The life of Perpetua, the life that she lived and died, is biblical Christianity. 
a life so full of the reality and the experience of God that not even execution could shake her faith, could rob her of joy, and to get her to walk away from Jesus. Not even the threat of execution, not even her father begging. Nothing could do it because she said, that's a water pot. It can only be a water pot. And I'm a Christian. And I can only be a Christian Christian because I have really experienced the presence of God. Friends, that's the type of life that God has for us. When we say, like the Apostle Paul said in, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the life God calls for us when we are in, hidden with Christ in God. And the things of the world then do grow strangely dim as we just see his marvelousness and we experience his presence in our life. Friends, it's about being all in. It's about living a Christ-centered life instead of a self-centered life where we join with God in his activity, not on our agenda, and where we then experience his reality because his reality, his presence, makes all the difference. Friends, God's at work. He's inviting us to join with him. And that's where we come to know him by experience. That's the life God has for us. Perpetua. Don't feel sorry for Perpetua. Long to be like Perpetua. And ask God, am I, am I like her or am I like Thomas Jefferson? Would you stand with me this morning? I feel like I've been ranting this morning. And I'm not much of a ranter usually. But I really want you to understand that there's more if you're not experiencing God. Why, why should we bother wasting our time coming together if there's not more? Why should we build buildings and sing songs and have youth groups and children's ministries and, and whatever else we do if there's not anything more than just creating God in our image that we think is all right? And it all starts with getting all in. It all starts with this verse from Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. And I ask myself all the time, Mark, who's really living? You are, you're, you know, you and Christ are just your old life. And you know what? We die daily. It's a daily decision to be a living sacrifice. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by, by in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My question for me and for you is, are we all in? I want to simply end this way by saying, that's between you and God. I challenge you to come and spend some time at the altar praying. I Spend some time in your, in, your, in your seat praying if you want. But just, let's just say, God, I'm all in. I'm going to close in prayer and then just release you to pray and to worship. When you feel dismissed, then quietly make your way out of the sanctuary. Have an awesome day in the presence of God. That's His will for you, to be in His presence. It's not condemning. It's just the opposite. It's joy-giving. He wants you to have the best. So, Father, we say this. We want the best. 
We want the best God. We want to to be walking in Your presence to such a degree, God, that we just experience Your reality. That, Father, we go from head knowledge to heart knowledge, that, that really we experience You. And, Lord, I thank You that over the last number of months we've been just looking at a process trying to get us to understand how we can really experience you and god i pray this that many people experience you in ways they never had before over these last weeks and months and i pray god that as we experience you we'd come to know who you really are and that god we would be filled with your reality so much so lord that we would joyfully walk through life joyfully walk through whatever circumstances life may have because we know we know you we know you we walk with you you're real to us and so God I pray now for this church family that God we would just walk in the fullness of the spirit and the reality of your presence and so God Just by an act of faith, I say I'm all in. I want to go all in, God. I want to go all in. If I'm holding back on anything, show me, God, because I want to go all in. Because we need you. Friends, spend some time in prayer. We feel dismissed. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in Jesus.